last year, we spent 15 weeks studying the first half of the life of King David from the book of 1 Samuel, where we continue with that series today. We're going to spend the next 12 weeks looking at the second half of David's life from the book of 2 Samuel. I guess uh, when I say the second half of David's life, I I don't mean chronologically. David, in actual fact, is in his late 20s at this point in the story, and he'll live to the age of 70. So he's not halfway through from a time perspective. But when we talk about the life of David, his story is split into two halves, before Saul and after Saul. This morning, we begin the story of David after Saul. Who was Saul? Well, uh, Saul, uh, as you may know, was the first ever king of Israel. Perhaps you already know his story. Uh, Perhaps you were with us last year. Uh, He is a tragic figure. He, He was certainly a believer in Yahweh, the God of the Bible, and he believed what God had to say. But he never understood faith. He never got it as to what it means to trust God. And in the end, failing to trust God was the death of him. Saul had understood that God had rejected him as king, and Saul knew that David was his anointed replacement. And envious of David's success everywhere and with everything, he became obsessed with destroying David. For considerably more than a decade, Saul persecuted. So, yes, Saul persecuted David uh, ruthlessly, manically, satanically, nearly killing him a number of times. But each time, David escaped, and this persecution carried with it an enormous cost—a huge cost to Saul, an enormous cost to the state, and of course, an overwhelming cost to David. For David, it meant living on the run, being a vagrant, a homeless man for years. Even, we saw at one point, crossing over to serve the Philistines, the arch enemy of the people of God, the the people of Israel. Well, um, if you'd like to open your Bibles to page 239, what you can see there is that we hear about Saul's death twice. The first book of Samuel ends with an account of Saul's death. You can see it for yourself on the top half of page 239. Well, how did Saul die? Well, there was a battle. The Philistines overran the Israelite positions and the army fled. Three sons of Saul, Jonathan, Abinadab, and Malkishua, all were killed. The Philistine archers overtook Saul and he was badly injured. Second wave of the attack, the chariots and the cavalry were nearly upon him. Now, according to the account that we read last year in 1 Samuel, Saul said to his armor bearer, verse 4, draw your sword and run me through or these uncircumcised fellows, fellows will come and run me through and abuse me. But his armor bearer was terrified and would not do it. So Saul took his own sword and fell on it and died. And as we saw last year, this was an ironic ending to uh, the life of Israel's 
first king. Saul was so frightened of death, but in the end, the thing that killed him was him. The Philistines didn't kill him. God didn't kill him. He killed himself. He died as a direct result of his inability to trust God. The account that we uh, read this morning differs insofar as rather than Saul dying by his own hand, we're told that a foreigner, a young man, an Amalekite, killed Saul as a mercy killing to save him from further suffering, almost certainly to save him from being tortured and abused by the Philistines. Um, This version of uh, Saul's death is also ironic, but the irony is different. Saul had lost the kingship because of his refusal to obey God's commands to kill all the Amalekites. And now he, the king of Israel, orders an Amalekite to kill him. Well, the two accounts are almost identical. But they do differ with respect to a detail, a detail that turns out to be of key significance. Did Saul die by his own hand or by the hand of the Amalekites? Which account is the accurate one? I don't think there's an easy answer to that question. There is no way of reconciling the two stories that doesn't involve guessing. The narrator who wrote both stories doesn't reconcile the two stories for us. He clearly has no interest in that. So he is asking us to listen to story one and then to listen to story two. It may be that the Amalekite is lying. Of course, that is a guess. For certainly, the Amalekite does think that he can profit from these turn of events as the bearer of news that he expected to be this news to David, extremely good news, the death of his persecutor Saul. However, we notice that the young man does not initially volunteer the fact that he'd killed Saul. He almost appears to obscure it at first. Then he makes his confession, the thing that will lead to his condemnation. He he, he makes that confession actually on interrogation, on cross-examination. And there is no reason for him to lie. The good bit is that Saul's dead, not that he killed him. There's no reason for him to lie. There's no reason for this to be embellished. And when he confesses, he confesses freely. And his defense is ample. His defense runs something like this. First point, I was responding to a direct order from the king. He told me to do it. Secondly, I did it because he was just about to die anyway. Thirdly, I did it because the chariots and their drivers were nearly upon him. I did it, fourthly, by implication to save him from humiliation and suffering at the hand of his enemies. Please notice, I do not consider myself guilty of anything, as is evidenced by my actions. I grabbed the crown and the armband, and I have brought them straight to you. After all, with Saul and Jonathan dead, who should lead Israel if not you, David? And when I got here, you'll remember, I bowed in front of you. 
Furthermore, when I arrived, you could see, this is, I think, my sixth point, my clothes are torn and there's dust on my head. You can see for yourself that I, too, mourn these tragic events. And lastly, in summary, Your Honor, in everything I have been, therefore, obedient to Saul and loyal to you. I rest my case. It's actually very clever, isn't it? kind of watertight. It did, however, go horribly wrong for that young man. We can imagine that he was quite surprised at how David responded, and perhaps we are too. Twice we're told that the young man is an Amalekite. This is important because the Amalekites were, above all, an impressively practical people. And this realism, this pragmatism led them only 430 years earlier in the days of Moses to realize for themselves that unless these Jews are exterminated, there would never be any peace in the Middle East. Exodus 17. Very practical people. And so too likewise, wasn't it obvious that the common sense thing to do was to put Saul down, to put him out of his misery, The problem is is that David sees something that the Amalekite doesn't see because the Amalekite sees only with the eyes in his head. He is a pragmatist, whereas David sees by way of God's word and so sees things differently. And so David asks the Amalekite a question that highlights the Amalekite's blindness. Verse 14, why weren't you afraid to lift your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed. That's uh, David's first response to execute the executioner. David's second response was to grieve, to lament and weep and tear his clothes and fast until sundown. This is actually the more important response And so we are told about it first in summary in verses 11 and 12 and then in detail in verses 17 to 27 wherein we read the words of a lament. A lament is a poem. Uh, A lament uh, is words used to express grief when you're crying. Words used to express the grief that is making you cry. If you weren't crying at the start, you will be at the finish. And 70% of the Psalms are lament. So let's look at this lament because it was worth recording twice. Once in the book of Jashar and also in the Bible. Recorded not just for the people of Judah 3,000 years ago, but also recorded for us today. And the first thing I'd like us to notice about this lament is that it is compulsory. David ordered that it be taught to everyone in Judah. Why should a lament be taught to everyone? Well, so that everyone can learn the right response to death. Um, And the whole nation is grieving. They're grieving these tragic events. They're grieving uh, the the destruction of the army. They're grieving all the other people uh, who... um, have, have died. They're, they're grieving 
um, uh, the, the loss of their king and his heirs. And the right response to death, the right response to death is to cry. Whether the person who has died is your worst enemy, like Saul, or your closest friend, like Jonathan, the right response to death is to cry. We need to learn this lament because actually we are hopelessly in denial about death and completely at sea as to how to respond. Here are some of the things that I have observed. Sometimes I've observed when somebody dies, close friends avoid each other. Maybe even crossing the streets to avoid each other because they don't know what to say to each other. They don't know how to respond. And another thing I've observed is we, youth, we euthanize death. I, I was taught by my supervisor when I was a, a hospital uh, chaplaincy intern at Royal Perth Hospital. My, my supervisor said to me, never euthanize death. Don't be part of the great denial. Denying reality does no one any good. Never refer to someone as having passed away or passed on. They are dead. Never tell anyone that their relative, friend, or spouse has passed away. Tell them that they have died. She was, of course, right, and uh, the lesson has stuck. But I think that the denial of death has intensified in recent years. Um, I'm so sick of seeing funerals and memorial services labeled celebrations. Boy, that troubles me. We gather this afternoon to celebrate the life of so-and-so. What rubbish! If you haven't celebrated their life while they're alive, it's too late when they die. That's the time to mourn. Actually, the Anglican prayer book gets it right. It it opens funerals with these words. We have come together to thank God for the life of so-and-so, to mourn and honor him, to lay to rest his mortal body, and to support one another in our grief. No one's there to celebrate. No one's there to celebrate. Another thing I've observed over the years, something else I have seen under the sun, uh, young people often don't cry at funerals. Um, sometimes uh, even when the person who's died um, is, is very close to them, a friend, a grandparent, yet the young people don't cry. Um, that, that, that's entirely okay. Um, it's because they don't know how to behave yet. No one's taught them. Um, This is what David is doing here. He is teaching people how to behave, how to respond, how to grieve. If if you've got young people in your household, you might like to tell them if you're on your way to a funeral, whether it's somebody close or somebody unknown. It's okay to cry. Actually, that's the correct thing to do. You don't have to wear sunglasses. You can cry. It's okay to cry. Older people often do cry at funerals. Here's another thing I've observed under the sun. 
Sometimes older people cry at funerals even when they've never met or even heard of the deceased before the day of the ceremony. I've seen that. And it's entirely okay. It's because they know. It's because the right response to death is to cry. Saul and Jonathan get equal space in this lament. Saul, to be sure, King Saul had destroyed David's life, forced his family to live as refugees in Moab. Saul had defamed David and robbed him of house and home. But we also know that there was no bitterness in David. And that's no surprise for us because we know what David did with his bitterness. We've read book one and we've read the Psalms and so we know that David prayed his bitterness into God's hands. In God's presence, God under, sorry, in God's presence, David understood that God was sufficient. Sufficient to carry his pain. Sufficient help for himself and a sufficient judge for Saul. If David had not processed his pain, anger and bitterness into God's hands in prayer, if he had not forgiven Saul, then he would certainly by now have been consumed by hatred and bitterness and he would have become, as a direct result, exactly like Saul. But but David and Saul are completely different and completely different kings. And actually, we do, we do have a choice to make. Um, and our choice is as simple as this. We can either love our enemies or become exactly like them. That's the only choice we have. We can either love our enemies or become exactly like them. Well, there's one thing about Saul's death that made it particularly tragic. Saul was a human being. And the right response to the death of any human being is to cry. Verse 24. Daughters of Israel, weep for Saul, who clothed you in scarlet and finery, who adorned your garments with ornaments of gold. Jonathan, David's best friend, We were, we remember, um, you know, watching them as friends in book one, and they were well matched as friends. Uh, They were like-minded in their love of the Lord and in their desire to serve the Lord. They were like-minded in their abilities and in their skills as warriors and leaders of men. They were well matched. In, In fact, really, of the two of them, Jonathan was the superior leader. Both men were admired by others, And they both admired each other. Verse 26 is worth considering. Um, Verse 26 in the NIV, in our Pew Bible, it's rendered this way. Verse 26, I grieve for you, Jonathan, my brother. You were very dear to me. Your love for me was wonderful. More wonderful than that of women. Um, I, I think Eugene, uh, Eugene Peterson in the message translation, he captures, he captures the feeling, he captures uh, the, the meaning of this verse when he renders it like this. He writes this, verse 26, 
Oh, my dear brother Jonathan, I'm crushed by your death. Your dear friendship was a miracle wonder. Love far exceeding anything I've known or ever hoped to know. Um, literally, um, the verse in the Hebrew reads something like this. I'm distressed over you, my brother Jonathan, very lovely to me. Your love was wonderful to me, greater than the love of a wife. I, I think there are two errors to be avoided when it comes to trying to understand David here. Um, the first error is to read something into these lines that isn't there. And the second error is to fail to read in these lines something that is there. Let me explain. For a couple of centuries now, for, for a couple of centuries, the Western world has tended to idealize romantic or sexual love. Uh, we make it in our culture and in our films and in our songs, we make it the thing to be aimed for, the thing that will save us, the thing that will fulfill us and make us happy. Romantic sexual love can indeed be intoxicating, even overwhelming, but it's complicated. Powerful instincts, big demands, hard work, difficult. Sometimes a person's greatest problem is the absence of a spouse. Sometimes a person's greatest problem is the presence of a spouse. It lets us down if we put too much weight on it. The Bible, in contrast, does not idealize romantic or sexual love. It celebrates it, to be sure, in one or two places, but it does not put it on a pedestal like we do. Now, if the Bible does tend to idealize one particular form of love, what kind of relationship is it that's idealized? Well, friendship is idealized in the Bible. Friendship is the thing that can save us. Friendship is the thing that brings out the best in us. It's the thing we need. It's the kind of love that best expresses what it means to be human. Um, our culture openly pities people who fail to find love, meaning romantic or sexual love. The Bible, in contrast, feels compassion for people who fail to find love, meaning fail to find a friend. So the first error would be to misunderstand David and imagine that there was some kind of romantic relationship between David and Jonathan. That would be as naive as traveling to India or Pakistan and seeing the men there walking hand in hand or arm in arm and come to the same conclusion. If you did that, you'd be completely misunderstanding what was going on. The second error is to not realize that David is indeed elevating friendship as of greater value than romantic or sexual love. Jonathan was God's gift to David. He was his friend. The right response to death is weeping. It's always catastrophe. It's always a disaster. Death is abhorrent to God, 
It wasn't the way it was meant to be. Outside of Lazarus' tomb, deeply troubled, Jesus wept. Like Saul, Jesus was handed over to the Gentiles who put him to death. Unlike Saul, Jesus did not resist being handed over to the Gentiles in order to be mocked and tortured. Unlike Saul, Jesus didn't die as a result of his own sin, but rather he died as a result of our sin in order that we might be forgiven. And God raised him from the dead on the third day in order that we might live in him. Like Jonathan, the relationship that God offers us is friendship. To be his friend through Jesus, his son. This actually is the transformative relationship for all human beings. This is the thing that truly and actually can be idealized because it is capable of bearing our weight. It won't let us down. To be Jesus' friend, that is the thing that saves us, the thing to be pursued, the thing to be aimed for as, as one's life ambition, the thing that fulfills us and makes us truly human. Friendship with Jesus. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Amen.